Jesus? Why is he important? How would you answer these questions if someone asked? As believers in Jesus Christ, we would all say that Jesus is the most important person who ever lived. But why would we say this? Why is there such a focus on Jesus? Why should I care about who he is or what he did? These are really important questions for us to be able to answer. The truth is, every believer should be able to answer these questions. The Bible tells us that we're to be able to give an answer uh, to someone if they ask us for the reason for our hope. Now, chances are we could all give an answer to these questions, but what kind of answers would they be? And here's what I mean. When someone asks these kinds of questions, they often want a, a succinct soundbite type of an answer. But if we haven't thought through these types of questions, we will have real problems giving concise answers to them. So there is so much that Jesus means to us and there's so much that Jesus has done for us that it can be difficult for us to boil it down to a brief answer. And so what we're going to do this morning is look at a passage of Scripture that explains to us what Jesus' mission, mission was. And my prayer for this message is twofold. First, my prayer is that if you have never personally embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior, that today would be the day that you do that. Secondly, those of us that have trusted in Jesus would be equipped to give an answer to someone when they ask us for the reason of our hope. So open your Bible to Luke chapter 4. Uh, verse 16 is where we're starting. That's page 738 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'll ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. The Bible says, So that he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And when he hand, was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah... And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The title of the message is The Mission of the Messiah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. God, you are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And we come with a great desire to know you better. We come with a great desire, Father, to know your word, to know how it applies to our life, to be able to live it out in a lost and a dying world. God, there are people all around us that desperately need to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And God, they, they have questions about who He is and why He came. And God, as believers, we should be able to give those answers. So today, as we look at Your Word, let our hearts and minds be receptive to it. Lord, let Your Holy Spirit open us up that we would receive it. And that God, that we would be strengthened in our knowledge of the Gospel and our knowledge of who Jesus is and what He came to do. I ask today, God, that if there would be any here today that have never trusted in You as their Savior, that today would be the day that You would open their heart and let them see their great need for salvation and let them turn to Jesus for that salvation. Fill me with Your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech so that I could speak Your words in Your ways. Be glorified in all things today, God. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. But you may be seated. Now, what we're looking at today is kind of the, the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. 
Up until this point, Jesus hasn't done much publicly except be baptized by John the Baptist. Immediately upon being baptized by John the Baptist, he goes in the wilderness where he is tempted by the devil for 40 days. After being successful in overcoming the temptation, Jesus leaves and goes out and starts his ministry. And he goes out and he starts teaching. And his teaching ministry has already gathered some attention because he taught quite differently than the Pharisees and the scribes did. And so he comes now where we're at in the, the town that he grew up in. And, and I want to I take a, a second and go off on a rabbit trail. But I think it's an important rabbit trail to point out. Right, in verse 16, it said, When he had come to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Now, just a question. Jesus had a custom. It was his habit. It was the thing that he normally did. What was it? He went to church. Now, today it's really common to hear people say we don't need church. I've heard believers explain they don't have a need for church. That, you know, if Jesus were living today, Jesus wouldn't be in church with the stained glass windows. He'd be out and about doing this or whatever. The only problem with that is what the Bible says. And the Bible says... But Jesus had a custom, he had a habit, he had a thing that he normally did, and that was he went to church when he was supposed to. Uh, moving on, he got the scroll, it says his opportunity to teach, he was given the scroll of Isaiah, he intentionally turned it to Isaiah 61, and he read this passage, he closed it and he sat down. And I liked that it said that all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed upon him. Right, Jesus' teaching had already gained some attention because of the way he did teach, and it was so different than others. And so they were kind of expecting him to, to do something. This was his hometown. They, they knew him. They had seen him growing up, and they had heard about his teaching in other places. What would he say here? Well, Jesus didn't disappoint. We see in verse 21, and he says, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And what he says is, This scripture talks about me. I am the point of what Isaiah was saying. Now, in the Old Testament, there was always a guy that was coming, the Messiah, that was going to come. And the Bible in the Old Testament talked about him in a lot of different ways. Isaiah 61 was one of the passages that talked about the Messiah that would come. And so they understood this to be a passage of Scripture that talked about who the Messiah was and what he would be like. And Jesus basically just tells to them right out in the open, this is me. I am the Messiah. This is what I came to do. And as we look at this, obviously what he's talking about is salvation. Right? Everything there is just a, an, an element, a part of the salvation that Jesus Christ provides for us. And so the, the main idea today is this. Salvation was and is the mission of the Messiah. Right? Salvation was and is the mission of the Messiah. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. That was, that was the whole point of everything that he did. All of his teaching, all of his examples, all of his miracles. It was to show people that he was the Messiah so that they would believe in him and they would then be saved. And in this passage, Jesus shows us what I'm going to call, I guess, three elements of salvation. The first one is this. Jesus gives hope to the hopeless. Jesus gives hope to the hopeless. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. So a part of this was to preach the gospel to the poor. Now to understand what it means by poor, we kind of have to understand the, the thought pattern that developed in this in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there were two types of poor. There were the godly poor 
and there were the ungodly poor, the righteous poor and the unrighteous poor. And the godly poor, the righteous poor were those who their poverty, the, the poor spoke not of just their physical reality, that they were poverty stricken, but it also spoke of their spiritual condition. Right? These were people that that were they were financially destitute. But at the same time, they understood that God was the only hope that they had. Right? These were people that depended on God to provide for them. These were people that went to God seeking guidance and help and provision and, and all of the things that God had said he would give to his covenant people. And these were people, they didn't go to God with an entitlement attitude. Right? The poor that were the righteous poor, they didn't go to God and say, God, you owe me. You know, I've done all of these good things and I went to church and I did this and you owe me, God. Instead, these were people who went to God and just said, God, I, I have nothing. To make you indebted to me. God, I, uh, you owe me nothing in life. But God, please. Please help. Please save. Please provide. Now, these were people that understood that, that they had nothing. And that God was the only hope and the only chance that they had. Isaiah had spoke of these people earlier. He said, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and you have no money. Come and buy and eat. Yes, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. And here God calls for people to come to him. But notice who he calls. Well, he does call the thirsty and he calls those, but notice he calls those who have no money. Right? These are those that have, they can't provide what they need. They don't have the ability to fix the problem that they have. And these are the people that God says, come to me and I'll give you all that you need in life. Right? And these people were, they had to understand that, that they had nothing. They had to understand that God alone was their hope. They had to understand that God alone was their help. They had to understand that God really didn't owe them anything. That if God Helped, it would just be because God is good. And he does things like that. But in this understanding, these are people who are hopeless. These are the people who, on their own, there's nothing they can do. On their own, there's nothing they can offer. They're just desperately in need of God. And here's the facts. Apart from Jesus, we're all poor. Apart from Jesus... We are all hopeless, right? Because none of us have anything to offer him. None of us have anything to give to him. All we can do is go to God and say, God, help. Well, why are we hopeless? Why are we helpless? Well, because I have no righteousness of my own. Right? I have no righteousness of my own. You know, that would be a, a tough statement. Right? I have, I on my own, am not in any way righteous. And that sounds hard to accept. I think that's one reason people have such a hard time with the gospel, because it says that we're all that way. But it's not just me saying it. This is a, a, a biblical fact. Right? The Bible says that God has a standard. Right? And this standard is the standard for all people. And that all have fallen short and none have kept the standard. Well, what is God's standard? Well, 
It would be the Ten Commandments would be a, a good basic idea of God's standard of righteousness. And if we were to, to go to the Ten Commandments and we were to look at each one, you shall have no other God before me. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall honor your father and your mother. You shall not kill. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. If we were to look at, at each one of those, you know what we'd find out? That we had broken them all. Right? That, that either we had broken the, the, just the very word of the Ten Commandments, or we had broken the spirit of the Ten Commandments. And since we had broken God's commandment, the wages of sin is death. And we are without righteousness. Right? We are all, apart from Jesus Christ, sinners. We have all violated God's commandment. And I love the way Isaiah expresses our lack of righteousness. But we are all like an unclean thing. And our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind taken us away. Now that idea of the filthy rag, that's a, that is a tremendous word picture. And there's a couple of ideas associated with it. I'm going to have to either trim my beard or get a longer microphone, one or the other. So we're going to have to get a longer microphone. Um, but the filthy rag, one of the ideas used with it was the rags that lepers used to wrap up their sores. Now, if you've ever read about leprosy, you know it was pretty nasty. After they got these open running sores on their bodies. And, and they were... Nasty. I mean, they, from what I understand, they smelled. The, the stuff that ran out of it was infectious all by itself. And so they were just constantly bubbling up and popping and running. And so they would wrap these, these things up so that it wasn't constantly just oozing down their arm. And these rags would absorb the, the pus and the blood and all of the junk that came up through these nasty sores. And you can just imagine how nasty those things were. And well, they would basically keep them on there until they were soaked through and they weren't really a rag anymore. They were just kind of letting the stuff run out. Well, they would get it off and they couldn't clean it. I mean, there was no washing that and reusing it. It was just entirely too too vile. And so they, they burned them. They were just that disgusting. Well, that leper's rag is a picture that Isaiah talks about our righteousness. That is, like, so can you imagine, if you were to come across that rag, just, can you imagine touching Something like that. No. Much less holding it up and going, look what I did. Look, look I'm, I made this. Well, we wouldn't do that. But when we try to say, look how good I am. Look, God, at all that I've done. Look at what a good person I am. That's what we're doing. We are holding up to God a filthy rag and saying, look at what I did. And one thing I want to point out before we move on is Isaiah doesn't say our sins are like a filthy rag. He says our righteousness. So, like, apart from Jesus, the best, not the worst we do, is filthy rags. Apart from Jesus, the best we do is like a filthy rag. We have no righteousness of our own. But not only do we not have any righteousness of our own, I cannot make myself righteous. Right? I, you and I cannot fix the problem. Right? Because we hear things like, all our righteousness is like filthy rags and I've sinned and broken God's law. And being humans, our first thought is, I'll fix it. Right? I'll turn over a new leaf. I'll start making changes in the way that I live my life. And so, 
we may change our habits, we may change our dress, we may change our speech. And, and, and for a while we may look like we're really doing well. But in the end, we're not really fixing anything. And as we look at our lives, and despite all the leaves that we've turned over and the best that we've done, we see we have still broken God's law. We have still fallen short of God's standard, and all of our righteousness is still like a filthy rag. I mean, if you today, apart from Jesus, were to just stop sinning and say, you know what, I'm never going to sin again. I'm going to keep the Ten Commandments for the rest of my life. You could not do it. You might could do it for a while. But eventually, what was in you really would come out and you would still break God's commandments. Why is that? Why can't we fix it ourselves? The Bible answers that for us. It says, for when we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. The phrase without strength is the phrase you need to catch. Usually it referred to someone who didn't have the physical strength to do something. Right? So let's say I called Joe Breeden up here. And we called Joe up here and he told him to lay on his belly. And then me and Scott, we picked up the communion table and we put it on top of him. And then we sat on it and we had everybody else come up there and sat on it. Right? At that point, Joe would be without strength to fix the major problem that he has. Right? He, could, he could scream, he could fight, he could threaten, he could do all these things. He might could even maneuver where he could breathe a little bit. There's no way he could get it off of him. There's no way he would have the strength necessary to fix the problem. And that's how we are spiritually. Right? It's not that we lack physical strength to do something. It's we lack the spiritual strength to fix anything. And what is it that we lack the spiritual strength to fix? Well, it's the last word. Ungodly. That word defines all of us apart from Jesus. We are all ungodly. We are all sinners. We are all unrighteous. And we are completely without the strength necessary to change it. That's why Jesus had to die. That's why Jesus had to come. That's how Jesus gives hope to the hopeless. He can change what we cannot change. He can give us what we cannot have on our own. He can give us His righteousness. When we're saved, an exchange takes place. My unrighteousness is taken to the cross. And His righteousness is credited to my account. So that when God looks at a believer in Jesus Christ, He doesn't see them as an ungodly sinner. He doesn't see them as an unrighteous person. Instead, He sees them as the righteousness of Jesus Christ. See, that's how Jesus gives hope to the hopeless is because he can fix the problem we have. He can give us what we cannot earn. He can change us where we cannot change it. But in the essence of this idea is what Jesus meant in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, the poor, the hopeless are those who recognize I I'm unrighteous, and I cannot fix it, and so I need Jesus. And when they go to Jesus, they find there's hope that replaces their hopelessness, that he takes away our sin, and he gives us 
His righteousness. Hope for the hopeless is part of the salvation that was the mission and is the mission of the Messiah. Secondly, Jesus heals broken hearts. He goes on and he says in verse 18, he has sent me to heal the broken hearted. Now, in in all times, in all parts of the world, at all times of life, there are people who are overwhelmed with the circumstances of life. There were people in Isaiah's day. The circumstances of life had overwhelmed them and their hearts were broken. There are people in Jesus' day, as he read this, who are overwhelmed at the circumstances of their life and their hearts were broken. And there are people today, likely people in this room, who through various reasons and all kinds of circumstances, your hearts are breaking. And it's people who are crushed with grief, overwhelmed with financial problems, devastated by divorce, destroyed by sin, deserted by friends, consumed with loneliness, ravaged by disease or enslaved to the world. These are all people that are broken hearted. These are all people that desperately need help and they need someone to heal the brokenness of their life. And that's part of what Jesus came to do. He came to heal that brokenness, to comfort the heavy hearted. And I love how the Bible describes what Jesus said or how the Bible describes this cast All of your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now, there is so much about that verse. It is one of my very, very favorite verses. It is a verse I think on often. Because notice that we're told to cast all our care upon him. But there's no qualifiers. It's not cast your brokenness over your sin upon him. It's not cast the burden for lost folks on him. It's not not anything. There are no qualifiers. It has cast all of your care upon him. But if it is a a burden that you have, if it is a care that weighs you down, then guess what? Jesus cares about it as well. And he invites you to cast that care upon him. And the second thing is that it is an invitation. Right? We are invited by Jesus to cast our cares upon him. Now, think about that now. I don't know about you, but at various times in my life, there are great cares that I carry. There are great things that I have. And sometimes, for me, my cares are piddly little things. But in the big scheme of the world, they're not life-threatening or life-changing. They're just, sometimes, I just feel sorry for myself about various things. I'm sure you guys don't do that, but sometimes I do. And when I cast my care on the Lord, guess what? He's not going, great, Stacy's whining again. I get tired of this. Right? He's not like that. He cares. He invites me to cast that care upon him. Not because I found a key and I've learned the trick. Not because he's indebted himself to us and so he has to. For one reason and one reason only. He cares for you. Jesus invites you to cast all of your cares on him because he cares. I mean, isn't that great? We as believers, we have a God and a Savior who is high and exalted. Who the angels worship and do not even look at in all of his glory. But at the same time, that high and exalted and amazing God cares for the minute details of our lives. 
He cares about us. The Bible says that the very hairs of our head are numbered. And He invites us to cast all of those cares, all of those worries, all of those concerns on Him. And that's good stuff. The Apostle Paul was a tremendous servant of Jesus Christ, but he was also a man acquainted with griefs. And he wrote this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort which we ourselves have comforted or are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so the consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, notice the repetition of comfort. I mean, that's the theme. Our God is the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. And He comforts us in all our trouble, in any trouble. Right, again, this isn't the idea of a particular kind of trouble. This is troubles that come into our life. Well, what if it's my fault? Is that a trouble that came into your life? Well, yeah. Then He comforts you in those times. Your God cares about you. He comforts you. He is there for you. And one of the things I like best is it says that we're, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. And what I get from that is that He doesn't treat us all the same way. Right? Because some people's troubles are bigger than others, aren't they? You know, I stub my toe, that's one thing. I have a death in the family, that's something different. Jesus doesn't comfort everybody in a cookie-cutter way because we're not all the same. We have different troubles. We, we even if we have the same trouble, we, we receive it and we deal with it in different ways. And so He deals with us as with individuals. He knows our trouble. And He knows the depth of the way we feel about that trouble. He knows how great that trouble is. And the greater the trouble, the greater the comfort. And he pours out on us. So that is a great thing to know. We are going to suffer in this life. There are going to be hardships that abound. There are going to be difficulties that we deal with. That is just life in this world. But we don't have to deal with them alone. We have a Savior that cares. And He comforts us in all of our tribulations. He, he meets us in all of our needs. He heals our broken hearted. He invites us to cast our care upon Him. In fact, one of the great gospel invitations is when Jesus says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. So do you labor with trials and tribulations and with distresses and broken hearts? Jesus will give you rest from that. He'll comfort you in your trials. He'll comfort you in your tribulations. This, this is a part of who He is. This is a part of the salvation that was and is the mission of the Messiah. And then the, the last thing that Jesus tells about is that Jesus frees the captives. He tells us in verse 18 to proclaim liberty to the captives and on again. The last, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Who are the captives and who are the oppressed? Well, 
again, it's, it's us. It's us apart from Jesus. We are captive to sin. The Bible says that apart from Jesus Christ, we are all slaves to our sinful nature. We follow the course of this world. And we follow the prince of the power of the air. And that we are enslaved to sin. We are oppressed and dominated by it. This is all people apart from Christ. And Jesus comes and he says, there is freedom from this. You don't have to live as a slave to sin any longer. I want to show you a passage. I want us to look at a passage together that that I think does a great job of explaining this. Because we hear the idea that Jesus came to free the captives and we think, well, maybe that means I should never struggle with sin. And if I still struggle with my sinful nature, then obviously I'm not a freed captive. But that's really not what it means. It, It means that though sin is present and though the desire to sin may even be there, there is the ability to resist it. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6, verse 12, page 861 in your pew Bibles. Now, Paul preached a gospel of grace. Paul preached that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul said that we're not saved because we stop sinning. Right? That if you stopped sinning today and never sinned again, but didn't believe in Jesus Christ, you would still be lost. Paul preached that it doesn't matter how many good things you do, that you're not saved by the good things you do. If you started doing good things today and did good things for the rest of your life, apart from Jesus Christ, you would still not be saved. That salvation comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. And so his opponents seized upon that. And they said, so you're saying that I'm not saved because I stop sinning and I'm not saved because I do good. Therefore, what you're saying is in Christ, I can live in sin. And I don't have to worry about doing good. And Paul says, of course, that's not what I'm saying. All right. Don't 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 be a jack wagon. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Now, he didn't say jack wagon. That's not in the Bible. The best I can tell. One day I'll do my own translation. It'll be in there then. Um, and Romans six is where Paul begins to deal with that. Paul takes this idea to task of that we can since we're freed from sin, we can live in sin. And he explains in the first 11 verses of chapter six. No. That's not what I'm talking about at all. And he explains that that we have really, we have died to sin. That we have died to its control over our lives. And we are now alive in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 12, or in verse 12, he begins to get into what, what I would call the practical application of this doctrine. And he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey it in its lusts and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God for sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under the law but under grace what then shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace certainly not do you not know that to whomever you present yourself, slaves to obey, you are that one slaves to whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from your heart the form of doctrine which you, which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. Now, there's several things about this that we need to know. One is recognize the idea of choice. Right? One of the things that Paul brings out in this passage is that we have a choice. 
And he, he talks about in verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey it. Do not present yourself in verse 13. Your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. Um, verse 16, do you not know that whom you present yourselves? In verse 17, that once you did one way, but you obeyed something else you chose. And so all throughout, there's this idea of choice. Right? And the, the kind of the idea is this, we're going to serve something. Right? We're going to serve something, and we're going to serve someone. And and Paul lays out in this passage that there's two choices. We can serve God or we can serve sin, right? There's no Switzerland. Nobody gets to be neutral. We're one or the other. Now, as unbelievers, that choice doesn't exist. Unbelievers serve sin. Unbelievers follow their sinful nature. But as the redeemed in Christ, we now have a choice to make. All of our lives are going to struggle with the temptation to sin. All of our lives, our sinful nature is going to pull against us. But what separates us from the unbeliever is that we can choose who or what we obey. We can choose to obey God or we can choose to obey sin. That is our choice. That is part of the the freedom that Jesus gave us is the freedom to choose who or what We're going to obey. We're told in verse 12 not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. And I like that. Because reign means to rule. In in the context of sin, it means to dominate. Our world kind of wants us to think that it's okay, that, that small sins or things are, you know, there's respectable sins and there are things that are not that big of a deal. And as believers, we shouldn't, you know, be overbearing about what the Bible says. Victorian era morality is all sort of past and, and it's different. And we can, you know, we can compartmentalize our life. I can serve myself over here, but still serve God in this way. And what Paul says is, do you understand that, that sin doesn't, is not content to coexist in your life? But sin doesn't want part of your life. Not really. But Satan doesn't want just an, an area. Right? He doesn't want just your thoughts. He doesn't want just the way you act at work. He doesn't want just your time on the internet. He doesn't want just a little bit of this. He wants control of your entire body. He wants control of your entire life. And the little bit that we give him gives him a place to push for full control of our lives. But when he gets control, he's going to promise us freedom, right? This is real freedom. Do what you want to do. Don't let that anybody tell you this or don't act like that. You can have real freedom by doing this. Or this is where pleasure is or this is what it's like to really be alive or, or whatever. But once he gets control, it's not freedom. It's not joy. It's not pleasure. He domineers and he destroys. That's what he wants. We talked about last week the the lion that looks to devour, that he comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. Make no mistake, if you present a part of your life to be an instrument of unrighteousness, before long, sin will have dominion over your life. And it will oppress you. And it will destroy you. And Jesus came to give you freedom from that. No one has to be destroyed by sin. No one has to be enslaved by sin. 
Jesus came to set the captives free. And that freedom is our inheritance in Christ. We must, though, choose to live in that freedom. We must choose to live in freedom. Go ahead and turn back to Luke chapter 4. There's a, a thing that I think is interesting. Verse 19, Jesus says, to set at, or it's 18, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Verse 19, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and he gave it back and he sat down. The interesting thing is, that's not the end of what it says in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah, it says this, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance. Of our God. So Isaiah talks about not only a day of salvation, but a day of of judgment. Jesus stopped there. Why didn't Jesus go ahead and read that part? It was in the Bible he had. Why didn't he read it? Well, it's because the day of God's judgment is not yet. The day of, of God's vengeance against sin is not yet. Now, it is coming. And Jesus spoke about it often. Quite often, in fact. But what he was, the point he was making was that right now, now is the time of salvation. Now is the day of grace. Now is the day of mercy. Now is the acceptable time for the salvation of our God. Now there will come a day of judgment, but it's not yet. The thing we've got to understand about judgment and the way this works, right now, God calls whosoever will to come to him. Right now, Jesus says, come to me and lay your burdens down. Jesus says, call upon me and I'll save you now. And that goes up until the day of God's vengeance, until his second coming. And upon the day when Jesus returns, the door of grace shuts. On that day, there is no salvation. There is judgment without mercy. And if we were to look at Revelation 20 and the people standing for the great white throne of judgment, there is just pure, absolute, unmerciful judgment on that day. But that day is not yet. Right now, Jesus calls, come to me. Right now, Jesus says, today is the day of salvation. Right now, Jesus says, come and let me give you hope for your hopelessness. Let me give you righteousness for your unrighteousness. Let me heal your broken heart. Let me free you from your captivity. And the decision, though, it's up to us. See, God, the way God works in our life is that he he calls us through his word and through his spirit. And as we look at God's word and we see the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit deals with us and he says, this is for you. This is for you. You need this right now. And I remember the day that I was saved. It was. I mean, I knew. I knew that God was calling me to salvation. I knew. 
that God was saying to me, you are lost. You are unrighteous. You are under my wrath. But come to me and let me save you from all of that. And that's what he does to each of us as individuals. He calls us in that way. And when he calls us, though, we have a choice to make. So we can cooperate with that calling. And we can respond and say, yes, Lord, let me come. And we come and we cry out to Jesus and we confess him as our Lord. And we ask him to be our savior and he saves us. Or we can resist that conviction. We can push against it and we can say, not now. I'll do it later. Or or we can say, no, I'm not going to whatever, but we can resist it. And right now. In this room, every one of us, we are all going to make a decision about Jesus this morning. We are going to choose him as our Savior and as our Lord, or we're going to choose to continue to be our own Savior and our own Lord. We are going to choose to receive the salvation he came to bring, or we are going to choose to, to hope for the best and that it would all be okay in the end. And the thing is, here's, what, here's what's true, but I wish wasn't. Jesus will let you make whatever decision you want to make. I'll be honest. I wish he forced us to be saved. I wish he was like my older brother when he called me to do stuff. Would hold me down and grind his elbow into my head until I gave in. He gave in and did what he wanted me to do. You see, God doesn't do that. God says, here's what I offer you. This is what's best. And here's the alternative. You choose. And whatever we choose, he lets us choose. The rich young ruler came to Jesus wanting to know how to be saved. And he said, here's what you do. But he walked away. He he wouldn't do what Jesus said and he walked away. And what I always bring out in that passage is that Jesus let him. In John chapter 6, Jesus taught about who he was and what he had done. And the people said, that's a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And the Bible says that many turned and followed him no more. And guess what he did? He let them go. And so today, the Holy Spirit has revealed to you your need for salvation. Jesus wants you to be saved. He he went to the cross for your salvation. That was the whole point that he came for was the salvation of sinners. And that's his best and that's his want for each and every one of us. But if you decide to resist that and reject that, Jesus will let you. And you will live with that decision for eternity. But what a senseless thing for someone to live in a community with 15 Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. To come to a church where the gospel has been proclaimed. To be aware that God is drawing me to Himself. And yet to still end up facing the judgment of God in eternity. What a needless thing that will happen if you choose it. You must choose Jesus. You must believe in your heart that he died on the cross for your sins. You must believe that he rose from the dead. You must believe that He can and He will save you if you call upon Him. And you must personally call upon Him to save you. 
No one can do it for you. No one can choose Jesus in your place. It is your decision. And you stand or you fall with the choices that you make. Let's stand as our musicians come forward.